Hello, and welcome back to the Quavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm your host, Zach. If you've ever built a data science or software product, you're probably familiar with the idea of a customer or user persona. Thinking through the different types of customers you have is a crucial task if you want to build the right solution to make your product fit the market or ultimately to achieve your goals like adoption, widespread usage, or revenue. But that's not only true in building software or data science products. Defining customer personas is a key task in marketing as well. This month, we're going to talk with a Quavio team that recently built a feature all about customer personas. No matter what field you're in, you should find this useful. Although the exact use case here is marketing, the same core principles of understanding and then intelligently aggregating and grouping your customers applies very broadly to other fields as well. We'll go ahead and start by introducing the team. Could you each give a quick introduction of yourself, the team you're on, and what you currently do at Clavio? Nick, let's go ahead and start with you since this is, I think, your third time on the podcast. Welcome back. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I'm Nick Hartman. I've been at Clavio for about three and a half years. I currently work on the predictive analytics team as the engineering manager, and that's the team that built the feature we're talking about today. Fantastic. Isabel, I believe this is your first time on. Welcome. Yeah, happy to be here. My name is Isabel Yap. I'm a product manager at Clavio. I've been here for just over two years, and I work with the predictive analytics team and the groups team. Excellent. And Jacob, also your first time on. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Jacob Brandt. I am a senior software engineer on the Predictive Analytics team here at Clavio. I've been at Clavio for nine months now, mostly working on the product we're talking about today. Fantastic. Great group. Thank you for coming on the show today. Zach, would you like to kick us off? Absolutely. So traditionally in these feature deep dives, we start off not with the what or with the how, but with the why. Let's start there today. What were the customer needs that ultimately motivated the work that we're here to talk about? Yeah, I'm happy to take this one. I think the core thing for us is that, you know, in, in talking to customers across different segments, so everything from entrepreneurs to upmarket, there are two themes that are really constant. One is that our customers want to understand their customers better and, you know, find areas of opportunities for serving their needs better. The other thing is that they don't have enough time. Right. So they have so many things to do when they're inside Clavio. They have campaigns to build, flows to build, like as much as they want to do that analysis, it's really hard to get the time to do it. So RFM, and we'll get a little bit more into the definition shortly, is a tool for thinking about your customers based on their purchase behavior. And really the draw for this feature, I think, is like, how do we deliver those insights to our customers about their customers while saving them time? So since Clavio sort of does the heavy lifting of grouping these people dynamically and then surfacing these insights in sort of like a digestible manner, we think it's like a really good springboard for thinking about your historical marketing. Like, how are the tactics and strategies that I implemented six months ago affecting my customers, as well as your you know future marketing efforts? So we really want it to be like a starting point for our users to think about their audience in a key way. And then hopefully, you know, start trying things out. So are these universal needs? Are there certain types of customers that this is more or less important for? Yeah, I think it's a universal need as long as you're selling like a product or service. So we think this is useful if you have paying customers 
you do need to have a certain amount of historical data to qualify for the feature. So there needs to be 500 qualifying events. That's what we call the sort of like purchase events. And I also think just having looked at, you know, how the feature plays out in a couple of user accounts, it's helpful to have at least a year of historical data as well. That way you sort of capture like, you know, one full year of seasonality, because as we know, there are certain spikes in when customers buy, and this can vary a lot depending on what type of product you sell. But yeah, we think it's like useful to everyone. The more you know about your customer, as long as you're selling something, the better. So you brought up RFM. That's kind of the main topic for today. I'd like to dive into it a little more deeply. Obviously, let's go ahead and start with the fact that RFM is an acronym. It's probably pretty obvious where I'm going to start. What does it actually mean? What is RFM and why did we ultimately gravitate towards RFM as a solution to the problems that you just brought up? Yeah, so RFM stands for recency, frequency, and monetary value. And these are sort of three dimensions that you can use to define a customer's spending habits. So recency is how recently did they make a purchase? Frequency is how many purchases have you made? Monetary value is how much money have you spent? So in our RFM analysis, we're grouping customers into these different cohorts according to those three dimensions. So for example, we might have a cohort named Champions, which comprises all customers who have made a purchase really recently, they've purchased a lot, and they spent a lot of money. Or we might have another cohort called Needs Attention, and that could be customers who may have purchased really frequently in the past and spent a lot of money, but not recently. So depending on you know, how you measure up against these three dimensions, that will decide what cohort you get bucketed into. And then why did we gravitate to this solution? So there are a number of reasons. I think one reason is just that it's an industry standard tool. So RFM analysis is something that's been around in marketing for quite a while. A lot of their users are very familiar with it. And some of them even conduct their own analyses outside of Klaviyo to run RFM. Another reason is that it gives the users a very interpretable framework to think about their customers. So once you've established these different RFM cohorts, you can then have this valuable framework for thinking about your customers as you're developing your communication strategies all across Klaviyo. So for example, maybe you've sent an email campaign and it would be helpful to filter the results of the campaign to just your champions cohort and see you know, how that content resonated with your most valuable customers. Or maybe you created a sign-up form and you want to understand, okay, how many champions did I acquire in my sign-up form? Like I acquired X number of customers, how many of them turned out to be super valuable? Or maybe you could more directly use RFM by creating targeted communication based on what cohort a customer is in. An example of that might be if you set up a flow within Klaviyo for when a customer enters the needs attention cohort, you automatically trigger them through this email flow, which has very specific communication to try to get them to re-engage. And I'll say one more thing about RFM, which is that it's relatively straightforward inter and interpretable to users who aren't necessarily statisticians or data science experts. So more predictive models, I think, are super valuable, and I think they're complementary to RFM. But RFM gives users something that they can wrap their head around, and it describes like the current state of a customer. It's not a black box. We're very clear in the product and in our documentation exactly how we are assigning a customer to an RFM cohort. And Users can even customize that algorithm. So when a user sees that a certain email campaign is resonating with their champions cohort, that's a really valuable insight because they know what a champion is. They might have even customized it for their unique company. And having this level of interpretability makes that insight really valuable. So I'm intrigued by this specific list of cohorts. Champions needs attention. How did we come up with that list of the different segments? Are those industry best practices or was this based on some of our own research? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So even though RFM is an industry standard technique, there's really no industry standard way to conduct it. There's no industry standard scoring system or number of cohorts or type of cohorts. So really what we did in our development of our feature was we just talked to customers and got a sense of how they think about their customer base. And we sort of identified the common themes that we were getting from these conversations, like some customers or most customers consider like a champions-esque cohort when they're thinking about their customer base. Like they think, okay, what are my VIPs doing? How are they reacting to the communications I'm sending them? And they think about cohorts like needs attention, you know, customers who maybe used to be very valuable, but have lapsed. So we came up with six different cohorts, and these were all based on what customers are already thinking about their customer base. And we just sort of made it a little more formal so that they can use this like transportable mental model all throughout the product. So you mentioned earlier what we do when a customer enters a given cohort. And it makes sense that these segments wouldn't be static over time. A single customer can flow between multiple of these groups over the course of their lifetime as a customer. Does this pose any additional challenges for this project? Yeah, I think there are a couple of challenges. There are product challenges and technical challenges. I would say for technical challenges, it just means that we have to have some notion in our programming of like a user flowing between cohorts and be able to sort of react to that. So maybe you want to trigger a flow on the event of someone going from one cohort to another. So somebody used to be a champion, they became at risk or needs attention. Like as soon as that event happens, we want to trigger a flow so that the user gets the communication that we want them to receive or the customer, the recipient gets the communication that we want them to receive. And then I think for product challenges, we'll talk about this a little more when we talk about how we score customers and group them into cohorts. But we wanted to make sure that even as your business evolves, the notion of like what constitutes a champion and what constitutes needs attention, that can evolve with like the changes in your business, but there needs to be some ability to compare champions from yesterday to champions from today. Like the concept of a champion should be like relatively constant, maybe within the context of where your business is right now. But that created a lot of considerations when we decided how to develop our scoring system. Okay, so you have the basic idea here. You use recency, frequency, monetary value, divide people into these cohorts that are more intuitive for a customer to actually use and that they can adjust themselves. I'm using my absolute naivest data scientist voice here. That's basically all you need, right? Like how difficult could it actually be from there to define things like high frequency or medium monetary value? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer, as you might have guessed, is it's not actually that easy. And there are a lot of considerations. So maybe I'll start with frequency. But stepping back, I can talk briefly about how we go about scoring customers with respect to each of these dimensions. So using frequency as an example, we have two concepts of scores in our RFM system. There's something called a raw score. And a customer's raw score for frequency is simply what is their frequency. It's like frequency is a measure of how often a customer makes a purchase. So a customer's raw score for frequency might be something like five purchases. There's also a concept of there's also a concept called a scaled score. And a customer's scaled score for a dimension is going to be a number between one and three. And that represents whether their raw score is high, medium, or low. So a super frequent customer would get a scaled score of three for frequency. And the scaled score is an important component of our final scoring system, which we'll eventually talk about. So when we're developing our scoring system for each of our three dimensions, we had to think about how we computed both the raw scores and the scaled scores. So starting with the raw score for frequency, it seems pretty straightforward. The raw score is just the number of purchases, but there's actually another somewhat industry standard option that we encountered doing our competitive research. And some 
people who run RFM analyses actually use the number of unique days on which you placed an order for your raw score for frequency. And there's some justification for that. Like consider a customer who, you know, makes a purchase today of like two socks and they submit their order, the purchase is done, but then a couple minutes later, they realize they forgot to add a third pair of socks to their cart and they just want to go and purchase that again. Should that customer really get credit for making two separate purchases or should they only get the one purchase? Because, you know, if they had remembered to add everything to their cart the first time, it just would have been one. So that's one argument for using unique number of days. But I think there were more overwhelming arguments for using just raw number of purchases, especially as we talk to our customers. One reason is that most customers just think in those terms. And that's the way that we report on events in Klaviyo in general. Like if you look elsewhere in Klaviyo, all of our reporting tells you how many purchases a customer made and not how many unique days on which a customer made a purchase. So that creates consistency across our product. And then just another reason is in conversations with customers, we learned that they do actually consider, you know, taking a second action to make a second purchase, you know, a valuable indicator of the value of a customer. So we decided to go with just raw number of purchases as the metric by which we're measuring the raw score for someone's frequency. And then for scaled score for frequency, this was a little more tricky. In general, in scaled scores, we wanted to take into account the fact that a high frequency customer means something different for different companies. For example, if you're a cereal brand, you might expect somebody to be purchasing from you every week. But if you're a mattress brand, maybe you're a frequent customer if you've made a purchase once every couple of years. So in general, when we were defining scaled scores, our strategy was to use percentiles. So our first instinct with frequency is, okay, let's take the top 33% of your customers. Those will get a scaled score of three. The middle 33 in terms of frequency get a scaled score of two and the rest get a scaled score of one. What we actually realized when we looked at our data, when we were doing our exploratory analyses, was that for a large number of companies, they don't even have 33% of customers who have placed more than one order. And this is sort of just a reality of e-commerce. You get a lot of one-time purchasers who don't stay with your company. So while we kept the core rule of the tercials, the groups of 33% that would get scale scores of one, two, and three, we had to adjust that a little bit. So if you're a company who like your 66 percentile uh, number of purchases for a customer is not even two purchases, the way we sort of adjusted for that is if your customer has one purchase, they get a scaled score of one, two purchases is a scaled score of two, and three plus purchases is a scaled score of three. But if you do have customers that are placing a lot of orders, then we just rely on the tercials. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think the ideas of kind of consistency with data elsewhere and then dealing with the realities of e-commerce, definitely interesting to hear both of those. I'm curious, was there a similar analysis on the recency front? Yeah, recency was the tricky one. So the raw scores for recency were pretty straightforward. It's just how many days has it been since you placed your last order? But for scaled scores, it was a little trickier. So our first thought was to do tercials again. So if you're in the top 66, or if you're in the 66 percentile or above for recency, you should get a scaled score of three. But when we actually took a look at the data, we realized that there was a particular challenge here. And that is for most companies, the 66 percentile for recency is going to increase over time in terms of the number of days since last purchase. So for example, let's say we have a company and on January 1st, 2022, we found that the 66 percentile for a recent customer is somebody who has purchased within the last 180 days. Well, if we took a look at that number again, a year from now, we might find that the 66 percentile is now 360 days. 
And the reason for that is over time, a lot of these companies are building up a lot of churned customers who you know, made one purchase and then they haven't purchased in a while. So the number of days since their last purchase is just going to increase more and more over time. And they're sort of going to drag down the average when we're computing that 66 percentile. So it becomes easier and easier to achieve a scaled score of three for recency because that boundary is less and less strict. So we had a couple of ways that we tried to accommodate that. The first was, let's just restrict our threshold building to like the last two years, for example. So we're only going to look at the 66 percentile of customers who have purchased within the last two years. So we are eliminating the concern of customers who have churned. And it turned out that when we looked at that, we actually had a similar problem. And we were still getting, for most companies, the recency score becoming less and less strict over time. And it's going to be kind of hard to explain that on the podcast, I think. So maybe I'll just give a plug for an RFM blog post that we wrote that we can share in the show notes, which talks a little bit about the math of why that is. But the solution that we ultimately landed on was the following. So for a given company, we took a look at all of their multi-time purchasers. And for each of those customers, we computed their average time between orders. We then took the 50th percentile of these customer level average time between orders, and that became the threshold to get a score of three. And we took the 95th percentile for the customer level average time between orders, and that became the threshold to get a scaled score of two. So let's say that those numbers are 180 days and 365 days, respectively. If I'm a customer who has placed an order within the last 180 days, that means I've placed an order within what we would generally expect the amount of time between orders to be. So I get a scaled score of three. If I'm a customer who hasn't placed an order within the last 180 days, but I have within the last 365 days, then it's taking me a little longer than average to make my next order, but it's still not unreasonable based on what we've seen in the past that I might make an order again. So I get a scaled score of two. And if it's been more than 365 days since I made my last purchase, then based on what we've seen in the data, it's unlikely that I'm going to make another purchase. So I'm going to get a scaled score of one. And the property of this methodology is that it stayed consistent for companies from one time period to the next. So we weren't like getting more lenient on the recency metric over time. You know, it would still be roughly the same requirement to get a scaled score of three a year from now as it is today. But we still are able to adjust for changes in like the fundamental business of a company. So if a company introduces more products that cause higher recency, then our system will adjust because the average time between orders will decline. And any changes that need to be made to the thresholds for recency due to fundamental business changes will be made. Yeah, definitely a lot more complicated. It sounds like a lot more going on there. How about monetary value? Was monetary value as complicated as recency or was it closer to frequency? Yeah, this one was a little easier, I think, but there were still some challenges. So the main challenge here was how to compute the raw scores. In RFM analysis, there are two industry standard ways to do this. There's CLV-based and AOV-based. So CLV-based is customer lifetime value-based. It's how much have I spent in my lifetime as a customer. And that's just like a sum of all my purchase values over time. The downside to CLV-based is that a CLV-based score for monetary value is going to be highly correlated with your score for frequency. And that's just because as you make more purchases, naturally you rack up more historic CLV. And so we were a little concerned that having a CLV-based monetary value score wouldn't add a lot of valuable information to the RFM model that frequency wasn't already providing. 
And when we looked at our data, we confirmed that for a lot of customers who got a score of three for frequency, they were also just going to get a score of three for monetary value. In a sense, it's like an RFF model instead of an RFM model. Exactly. So we wanted to avoid that if possible. But there are some downsides to AOV-based scoring as well. AOV stands for average order value. And if we used average order value as the raw scores, then we could run into some edge cases that didn't necessarily make sense. The ultimate goal of RFM analysis is to categorize customers into groups that describe their current and potential value and place in the customer lifecycle. As we considered some of the potential groupings of an AOV-based monetary value score, we started to doubt that the AOV methodology was aligned with our RFM goal. So for example, if you consider a customer, Isabel, who has made three purchases with an average order value of $100, if we assume that $100 is a high value for this company, then Isabel might get an AOV-based score of three. But if you consider another active customer, Jacob, who has made 50 purchases with an average order value of $20, Maybe $20 is a low value for this company, so Jacob might get a monetary value score of 1 if we used an AOV-based score. And when we ultimately categorize Jacob and Isabel into their RFM cohorts, it's likely that Isabel could get categorized as a champion and Jacob would not because he has a low monetary value score, which could imply that Isabel should be treated as an MVP in ways that Jacob would not. And that's not really consistent with like the ultimate goal of RFM, which is supposed to identify, you know, different levels of value or categories of value for these customers. And when we talked about this type of edge case with our potential users, they sort of agreed and expressed similar concerns. So ultimately, we did decide to go with the CLV-based raw score. And for scaled scores, it was relatively straightforward. We just used the Tercile's method. So if you're in the top 33%, you get a score of three and so on. And by the way, all of these thresholds are customizable by the user. So if a user, for example, decides that they like to keep their group of champions more exclusive, They can say, oh, actually, you have to be in the top 10% of monetary value in order to get a scaled score of three for that dimension. Yeah, I think the natural like follow-up question as a data scientist that I have is, oh, why don't you do some ensemble of the two? I'm guessing that the reason is exactly what you said, this idea of it needing to be super interpretable for the customer and then being able to like directly choose thresholds and such. Yeah, exactly right. And I think like these are the types of things that we're going to consider in a V2. But for this MVP, we wanted to sort of get it out in front of customers. There are a lot more levers that we can potentially allow them to pull for customization. And depending on the feedback we get, we might expose some of those levers. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so you've kind of gone through a fair amount of detail on getting the raw scores and the scaled scores for each of the three components. I'm curious, once you actually have those scores for each of these three axes, how does that map to the segments that we talked about earlier, like champions or like needs attention? Yeah, so we sort of just have a mapping of what we call score vectors to cohorts. So when you get a scaled score of one to three on each dimension, that gives you a score vector. For example, if you're a three in recency, a three in frequency, and a one in monetary value, then your score vector is three, three, one. It's just sort of a triple of numbers. And we just have a mapping of score vectors to cohorts. So for example, our champions cohort, you have to be a three, 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 a three, three, two, or a three, two, three. And this is a mapping that is currently static and that Clavio decided on based on our conversations with customers and how they think about their customer base. But in the future, it's something that we might consider allowing users to customize. So we've talked at depth about the challenges of understanding our customers and of doing the real data science research. What were some of the biggest engineering challenges that we faced when putting together this research and putting this feature together? Sure, I can speak more on this. So when it came to building RFM as a product, 
there's a lot of moving pieces here. We have a UI that our customers interact with. We have all this data that we store in a data lake where all the properties are calculated and then turn into those scores. We have infrastructure living as code in one of our code bases. We have to make sure that we write the infrastructure as code so that we can process these profiles. So there's just a lot of moving pieces all over the place. And so when you have all these moving pieces, you have to monitor all of them. You have to have all the right alerts in place in case any of these moving pieces break. You have to make sure that you're getting customers the data they want fast enough, because if they update any of their thresholds that change the calculation of how cohorts are assigned to their customers, then you have to calculate all those new cohorts on the fly and then apply those new cohorts to all the customers. And you have to do that very quickly. So we achieve this in about somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour, but it can take longer if more companies are updating their definitions in parallel. It can take longer if we have to update all of our companies, customers, cohorts in parallel. So all these challenges of scale we have to address when it comes to updating cohorts for each individual company. Additionally, we have two different ways of calculating cohorts. We have the company level calculations that we show in our UI, and then we have our profile or customer level calculations that actually get applied at the customer level so that they can get the proper email sent out to them. They're applied in the proper flows. So making sure that those two places where we query that data align can be very tricky, especially when you're talking about the size of the data, like millions upon millions of profiles because we have to run those percentile functions against millions and millions of profiles and make sure that they always calculate to the same amount, regardless of if you're doing it in our data lake versus our more company-centric level metric bundling. So just the combination of making sure that all these moving parts are constantly running, constantly well-oiled, running without breaking, and that all the data looks correct when our customers see it in their segments versus in our RFM dashboard were some of our greatest challenges and this lastly, make sure that we are not making a product that's too expensive. We have to make sure that we're right-sizing all of our machines so that we're not just running up our cloud bill and making RFM a much more costly product than it's worth to our customers. So make sure that all of our machines are right-sized, that we're not using them too often, that we're not using too many resources so that we're still calculating this data properly, but also doing it in a frugal way that makes sense for Clayview as a whole. I guess I'm actually quite interested in that that last part, the idea of being right-sized. We're recording this the week of Black Friday, mm -hmm. so I feel it's a good time to ask, Like, were there any particular challenges with making sure that you have that balance of being right-sized versus scaling appropriate? Like, Were there any particular challenges you ran into there or just, I guess, like any yeah. interesting stories from that process? Absolutely. So the first week we ran this, we immediately ran into challenges with scaling. One of our processes that actually ingests all this data that we load from the data lake was breaking because there's loading too many of these S3 files that we store the process data from the data lake in and turn them into events. So we had to do some research into making sure that we were right-sizing that specific machine because I should have brought this up early, but like each part of this process is running on a different hardware. The process that displays the UI is running on a different process than the machine that checks for new properties being updated and starts off this whole process of pulling data from the data lake. The machine that pulls data from the data lake is a different machine than the machine that ingests, takes all that data that we pull from the data lake and then assigns properties to. So we have a lot of different machines that we have to align and make sure that they're running on the right size as well as the right piece. So another piece is our cluster of machines that pull data from the data lake. We did multiple tests and we also compared against other machines that pulled similar data to make sure that we were right-sizing because Pulling data for a data lake can take a lot of processing power. I'm talking in the size of like 
2x, 3x, 4, 5x large AWS machines. And if you work with AWS, you know that the bigger the machine, the more it costs. So making sure that we're not using these machines when we're pulling this data from our data lake is one of our most important things when we're talking about making sure that we're doing proper cost savings and being frugal so that we can make this Black Friday awesome and make it awesome for our customers, but also for Clavio so that we're not bringing through our cash to make this product. Yeah, that definitely sounds very challenging, having all of those different hardware systems working together. That really is like a complex solution. On the other side of things, this feature launched as kind of a larger suite of features related to the Clavio CDP. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Could we talk a little bit more about the CDP, kind of what it is and how it influenced this feature that it was going to be part of the CDP if it did? Yeah, I can touch on that. So first of all, CDP stands for Customer Data Platform. It's sort of our new add-on SKU to Klaviyo. And I think the goal of the CDP is to give customers flexibility to sort of harness the insights in their data. So one of the great values of Klaviyo is that we store all of your data from a bunch of different data sources, you know, your e-commerce integration or whatever other integrations you want to integrate with us. But it can be a little difficult and potentially overwhelming as a user to try to access that data and make the appropriate queries on it to produce actionable insights. I think RFM is sort of like a quintessential feature of the CDP in that, as Isabel was mentioning earlier, it sort of takes away some of the mental burden of trying to come up with these different cohorts of customers because everybody wants to know like, okay, who are my VIPs? Who are my customers that need a little bit more attention so I can help to get them re-engaged? In RFM, we sort of like take away that mental burden. We produce these insights for you. We give you like some interesting ways to look at your data. Like you've given us all the data. We're just, you know, helping you harness it and find actionable ways to look at it. So RFM, I think, is a good example of that. But we also have other examples of features in our new CDP offering that do sort of the same thing. They take the data you already have. They show you an interesting view of it that gives you ideas for how to take action. So we've talked a lot about the data science and engineering challenges that led up to the launch of this awesome part of the Klaviyo platform. What have we learned since the launch? Have there been any follow-ups or refinements since then? Yeah, definitely. Immediately following launch, this was actually during a limited availability period. We ran a set of customer interviews to try and understand, like, are people using it the way that we expect and really getting value out of the product? So there were some usability improvements that we've already rolled out. An obvious example is just where we keep the definitions in the UI. So we were getting a lot of questions in these interviews, like, hey, what's the difference between a champion and a loyal? And then we would ask them, like, you know, what do you think the difference is? Hoping that they would, like, go to the place where we were storing that definitions, which were hidden in a tab in the settings. But instead, people were coming up with their own hypotheses. And so one thing we decided on was we have to, like, pull that out from the tab and just have about RFM be its own button on the dashboard so that if you have that question, you don't need to guess, you can just click on it. So there were a few things we improved like that, but the real major theme, and it gets back to sort of this user need of not having enough time, is suggestions for how to act on the data. So there's a lot of interesting insight that you can get from the RFM dashboard, but it's really important that we help users get from that insight straight to like an action, whether that's running a test, right? Like maybe you want to send a targeted campaign to your champions with a special reward for being some of your best customers, or maybe it's something more churn oriented, right? So putting your at-risk customers into a flow that sort of targets them right at the time when, you know, after they cross this point, 
based on your data, it's unlikely that they'll ever return. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, we've been communicating to users primarily through supporting documentation or through conversations with their customer success manager. We had one customer, for example, you know, send out a campaign to their champions segment, and they did this as kind of an experiment. And it had like a open rate that was 8% higher than their average. So that was a great win. But that was something that they came up with themselves after sort of like poking the feature. And that's the kind of thing that we think would translate really well to other customers. So what we're spending a lot of time on now as a team is like, what are these great like tactics or actions that you can take in the Clavio platform that will sort of like utilize the RFM insight and really driving that sort of actionability is something that we're hopefully going to be able to improve on over the next couple months. I would also add that I think we learned a lot from how our customers are using the feature already that would influence future developments in this feature and in other CDP features. For example, we with the CDP, we released another feature called Funnel Analysis, which lets you take a look at a particular segment of your customer base and take a look at what actions they're performing and in which order and in the funnel. So for example, you can take a look at all of your customers within this segment who have received an email. And of those, how many then went to the site? And of those, how many added something to cart? And then of those, how many made a purchase? And so one of our customers within the first couple of weeks using the CDP was able to find a way to combine the power of RFM with the funnel analysis feature. So what they did is they made a needs attention segment using the RFM cohorts. And then they went to the funnel analysis feature and built a funnel on their needs attention cohort to figure out where in the process of making a purchase they were falling off. And that really was able to give them some insights into, okay, where do I need to catch this person before they drop out of the funnel? Is it something that I need to do on the site? Is there an improvement I need to do in my emails to get them to actually engage and go to the site in the first place? So I think like one thing that I've learned in this whole process is that you can really learn a lot from your users. Once you put the feature in front of them, they'll probably use it in creative ways that you never expected them to. That's such a cool example. How did we find out about that? Did we find out from looking at cross usage of the feature or was that from us talking to them? In this case, I think it was just our own curiosity of, you know, we had released the feature. There was a select number of customers who had access. So we just wanted to look manually at each customer's account to see what they were doing. And in this case, we just found a really cool example. Yeah, it's always so cool when you get that stuff organically. I think as always, I would like to end with some practical advice for our listeners. When it comes to customer personas, and here I'm going to use this fairly broadly, either understanding your own customers' personas or building a feature to help your customers understand their customers' personas. So either of those applies here. What would your top piece of advice to someone who's listening to our podcast and saying, man, this is a field that I want to learn more about. This is something that sounds like it's going to be useful for me. I just need to know how to start. I need to get some advice from people who know more than I do. Yeah, I have one. And then I'd love to hear from my team, actually. But I think this applies to our customers, like if you're selling a product or service or also other product managers is actually taking the time to do some in-depth interviews to support your quantitative data. So I think, you know, we live in this very like quant world where we're always sort of like looking at dashboards and metrics. And those are numbers that are very good for influencing like product decisions. But I have always found it worthwhile. And I've tried to do this in every product world that I step into to do just like four to five calls with customers. And it sounds like a lot of effort, but if those are like 30 minute calls, then it's really just two to three hours of your time. And then 
if you like have the right questions, which is really important, I think these interviews tend to really surface patterns. And so there'll reach a point when you're doing these interviews where you can kind of guess what the answer is. And I think that's really exciting because that indicates true insight. And I think having that qualitative data and verbatim customer feedback goes a long way in supporting decision-making that you might have just from the quantitative data. One thing I will say is if you serve a large number of customers, then obviously the number of interviews you have to do probably will increase. So it's not a bad idea to sort of like pick a segment and target them specifically. But I've always found these like chats to be very worthwhile and customers want to talk to you. You know, they do want to give their feedback, whether they're like really in love with your product or really hate it. Like those buckets of people tend to have a lot of opinions. And so that's always sort of like a good use of time, I think. I think for me, maybe from a data science perspective, I think there's always this temptation as a data scientist to sort of chase the new fancy ML technique and to create this really cool highly predictive black box model that we hope will really help our customers. But I think this process has really reminded me that there's something to be said for like relatively simple, interpretable rules-based algorithms in contexts like the ones we've mentioned for RFM. This is a feature that I think has really resonated with customers partially because they can really understand, you know, how these groups are being created. There's no black box. There's no like mental hurdle of, okay, I have to trust that Clavio's data scientists have put together a proper AI model, even though I don't really understand the inner workings, I think like because customers have complete control to define what these cohorts mean, and we just sort of give them the starting place, it's been a really valuable mental model for them to use and something that can provide really strong insights because they know, you know, exactly what's going into it. And that has sort of been a learning for me. I think my greatest takeaway was the importance of good data visualization. I've always been kind of skeptical when it comes to data visualization, but doing RFM and giving our customers a lot of different ways to view this data has, they've given us back the feedback that shows that they can now see their data in a different way and seeing that data in this different way has given them the creativity to experiment with new segments, experiment with all these other features. And it's only because we were able to show that data in a way that was meaningful to our customers. So I've been sold on data visualization. I realized how important it is to show our customers data in a way that is meaningful for them and a way that they can act on. All great pieces of advice, I think. Definitely. And actually, Isabel and, and Jacob, definitely touching on some topics that we've had full episodes on before. So this is a shameless plug. If you're listening to this episode and you think, man, I'd love to learn more about those topics, feel free to check out the back catalog. We definitely have some stuff that addresses those. And with that, I think we've reached the end of the episode for this month. So I want to again take the moment to thank you, Nick, Isabel, and Jacob for coming on. It's been wonderful having you and having this great conversation about RFM. Thanks, Michael and Zach. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that is the end of the episode for this month. This episode, as all episodes of the Clavio Data Science Podcast are, was sponsored by Clavio. Clavio's intelligent marketing automation platform makes it easy for marketers to centralize and use every piece of their customer data to deliver hyper-personalized experiences across all their channels, increasing conversions and revenue. If you want to know more about Clavio, go ahead and visit Clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you liked what you heard on this episode of the Clavio Data Science Podcast, please consider subscribing to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. Please consider leaving us a rating, a review. And I think most importantly, if you liked what you heard on this episode and you know someone who might be interested in hearing about this topic or other similar topics, share this directly with them. I think that's the best way to 
make sure that other people hear the Clavio Data Science Podcast is directly make sure that someone hears the Clavio Data Science Podcast. Helps us out a ton and hopefully it helps out the person you share it with as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what you heard on this episode, the best person to talk to is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. That's Lawson underscore M underscore T, L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thank you for listening. Have a great month. Thank you.